Welcome to Unsupervised Learning, where we bring members of the Merlin Mind team together to talk about artificial intelligence, technology, and education. We hope you enjoy these conversations and learn something with us. Let's learn. Welcome, everyone, to this episode of Unsupervised Learning, where we're going to talk to some of our AI experts here on the Merlin Mind team. Today, we're joined by Aditya, Ashish, and Paul, three of our leading AI experts who've spent their entire careers building advanced AI solutions, researching them, and developing them. Uh, we also have Jess here, one of our native teachers and expert teachers who works on our strategy team. I'm excited to have a conversation around a very important trending topic, chat GPT. Everyone's talking about it. What on earth is it? <laughs> um. I can try giving it a shot. Um, I, I'll just take a step back and um, maybe it helps to understand this whole uh, trending thing from maybe five years ago on this whole notion of large language models, uh, LLMs and whatnot that we've heard of, right? Uh, but to explain it in the simplest terms, because that really helped me in the first, in the first started reading about it, um, with the increase in the amount of data that we have, uh, there have been new architectures that have been developed called transformers, right? which enabled uh, to model language as uh, what's the next best word mm. that comes to sequence of words, right? Let's just think about this, right? So, uh, you, yeah. so is that like when I'm stumbling on a word and a friend is more like more articulate than me, they said, this is the word you're looking for. <laughs> exactly, in a way, in a way, right? But how do we develop language is, is a totally other question, right? But the way this was trained is that you look at uh, existing sequence of words in this huge database that we have internet, right? As an example, and over time you can start uh, um, and with good amount of uh, training data and training power, you can actually start creating probabilistic models of what's the next best word given what everything you've seen so far. So these are language models in general, and large language models have been with this huge billions of parameters and everything, right? More data, more bigger, more model parameters and whatnot. And that's been the biggest trend. And for that, there's been some developments on architectures called transformers uh, that, that you might have heard of, right? Um, and uh, most of these uh, uh, solutions that have come up are under these um, umbrella of large language models. And I guess if we just pause real quick and say, why do large language models matter? What does this type of evolution mean for the world? How do we benefit from this today in technology, even before ChatGPT and whatever else has changed there? Like, why do large language models matter? I would say um, it's 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 many things because um, they do have their own cons. I mean, the fact that large language models are blindly—I mean, if if not uh, trained with the appropriate objective are blindly trying to understand what's the next best word that is supposed to come in your sequence of words, not necessarily reasoning behind what's happening. And and this these models, most of them, right, at least in the start, were a snapshot of what's being trained at that instant. Uh, whereas the world knowledge is ever evolving, right? You, you're continuously changing what's, who the current president is, who's the uh, current affairs, right? Keep changing, mm. whereas your data is trained on a snapshot. At that instant, when it was trained, the next best word that was predicted might not be the most relevant after two years. So that, that has been something that people have identified and started working on what has to be the next big thing on large language models. Um, so, uh, so what I would as, add, yeah, you go. Ashish. Nima, what, I would, what I would add there is 
I think the single most surprising thing about large language models has been that as you grow these things larger and as you train them on more and more data, they show surprising, almost incredibly surprising emergent properties that, that I don't think we had necessarily anticipated. So for example, the capability of producing text that looks very similar to what a human would produce in many cases, the ability to produce very natural sounding language, um, the ability to write code based on a natural language prompt. Um, these kinds of properties are surprising mm. and they seem to emerge as a function of scale. So a small language model built the same way as a large language model may not necessarily have those traits. And I think that's been the really surprising and interesting thing for me as far as large language models are concerned. Right. So, and this is the whole notion of generative AI, right? generative uh, uh, models. And that is the biggest uh, difference maker in large language models. You can start generating uh, content, right? So, um, yeah, Paul, Paul, yeah, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Yeah. Um, so I'm not as impressed with scale as I am with um, the ability, and it's an expected ability, of large language models and a variety of uh, approaches to machine learning related to language. So for example, something as simple as word embeddings, where we, by any number of statistical or deep learning processes, produce a vector which has great utility for, a, a, for representing the meaning of a word, what we perceive as the meaning of a word, um, and that we can use computationally in a variety of ways. So anybody who's interested in word embeddings can go look that up. But the essence of that is that from data, by whatever technique, we learn a representation of at first meaning and then knowledge, both of the, in, in the case of word embeddings, it's more meaning. In the case of, large, of language models, whether or not large, there's some knowledge that I'll talk about, but there's definitely meaning being represented within the language model. So when we're, it's not, it's not necessarily generative that we're concerned with in language modeling. It's a representation of meaning that's a little bit bigger than a word. So we have sentence embeddings that are very useful for finding similar sentences. And we have paragraph embeddings that are very useful for finding similar paragraphs, all because they have a representation of meaning. And in that meaning, there are relationships between the concepts that we just talked about in word embeddings and you know, facts and multi-step relationships, potentially, certainly facts um, are, latently represented within these models. Um, and we can get embeddings at a variety of levels that represent them. So language modeling and uh, generation of language is not limited to next word prediction. BERT, the first of these, didn't predict the next word. It predicted what's the word that fits here. Mm. And to do that, it took, in some latent way, more than just meaning of the individual words, but knowledge, some approximation of what the meaning of that segment of text was in order to fill that slot. Um, so 
in language modeling, we're getting a representation of increasing complexity as we increase the training data and scale. That's, that's what's interesting about scale, hmm. um, is we can get to more and more sophisticated representations of knowledge that go beyond simple facts, what you would think of as a simple link. Hmm. So if I kind of zoom out a bit and like as a layman say, why does it matter at all? Language models allow me to now interact with technology more naturally. Is that a fair statement? So like tools that I use every day. So is it like when I'm using my email and it starts auto-completing a sentence for me, that I assume has come from a language model. When I'm interacting with a voice assistant and I give a command and it is able to understand me and respond to me, that is possible because of large language models. Is that is that why this all matters? Like, why does it matter that we're making progress with large language models? And what's the kind of eventual impact for humans interacting with technology? Well, I'd react to the use of the word, it's possible because of language models. Hmm. I would rephrase that to language models are particularly good at that given our current state of technology. Okay. Great. Other technologies, they're particularly good about. I don't, I don't know that they are required to do that. Exactly, um, because I think they've got things way better. They made things way better because the, some of the examples that Aliva you were talking about, right, kind of did work even before the large language uh, mm -hmm. models boom, right? It's just that things got significantly better um, with this uh, with language model embeddings, um, which Paul was referring to. Uh, uh, allowed us to interpret uh, voice commands in a much um, accurate, more accurate manner uh, because of the examples, some of the examples that we were referring to, right? Uh, sentence embeddings, uh, trying to identify which sentence is similar to which other sentence, uh, right? Things started getting much better um, with, this, with these models. Yeah, and as they got bigger, we got to the point that we could look at, and people are currently looking at thousands of words and uh, you know, understanding in some sense, representing that, understanding it in whatever to whatever degree that representation effectively represents it, um, and then using that. Um, pause. So, Chat GPT. So now let's jump. So we have large language models, and now something happened in the last two weeks in the public sphere that feels different to some of us. We're seeing everybody posting questions they asked and answers that were generated by a computer that feel almost like a human wrote that. And I think we start to say like, is it different? Is, did something magical just happen? Was there some huge breakthrough? Or like, is this the Turing test that's been broken? Like what, what happened, right? Let's take a vote. Who thinks something significant happened? So you get the, the people who don't know, like me and Jess are like, what's going on? Everybody's talking about this. Something significant happened. I don't think anything significant happened. I think it's just an incremental step along a trend, along a, uh, technical evolution. That's my opinion. How about you guys? I, I just say a thing, right? Um, I think this was the first uh, visible significant thing. But the, I mean, we'll talk about what uh, was the biggest change, right? I mean, as I mentioned, large language models have been there. GPT that we know of is one example of a large language model. Chat GPT or uh, comes from a family called GPT 3.5. That's what they refer to. That evolution, 3 to 3.5, has it's it's not like a step function that it suddenly changed overnight, right? It's been an evolving thing, as Paul is saying, that, which is why it's not like one significant strong step, but it's become visible now, but it's been an evolving thing with this whole framework called uh, reinforcement learning via human feedback, RLHF. So that notion was a good uh, uh, framework to take into account, bringing human feedback, but that didn't happen as a single uh, 
uh, step as such because it, it's not unique to OpenAI and ChatGPT. Yeah. Right. So I would say, um, of course, you know there are a bunch of words here, and and whether the answer is yes or no depends upon the meaning of these words, right? What is significant? <laughs> I don't know what significance is. But of course, what Paul and Aditya are saying is spot on, right? Like any of these things, this is a bunch of incremental improvements, you know, month over month, year over year, and that's led us to this place. I think the one significant thing to me about chat GPT is there is something very different about growing something in a lab and testing it in a lab and opening it out to anyone in the world and letting them play with it. Amen. Yeah. And chat GPT, like GPT-3 again, right? It's not, oh, it's not, it's not completely unique. OpenAI did the same thing with GPT-3. But this idea that chat GPT is at a level where you can release it into the world. And of course, people are testing it adversarially. They're trying to break it in Love that. Yeah. world they can. And by the way, uh, it's not broken down in, yes, there are, you know, there are all sorts of problems. There are all sorts of corner cases we're identifying and all sorts of risks, but it seems to be holding up pretty well. Can I, I'm sorry. No, go for it. Go for it, please. Uh, so so uh, thank you. Um, I think there are two, I think you just hit the nail on the head. OpenAI deserves a lot of credit for putting this uh, out there and letting people play with it, I think. Um, I Certainly, it's a great generator of prose. It's a fantastic generator of prose. Um, and that's along this incremental path. But there is a significant advance that's clearly visible. Um, it's not limited to chat GPT, though. It, and I think I'd like to hope we, hopefully we'll touch on instruct GPT. Um, but I think that there's some, so, so two things, one, putting it out in the open, and two, chat. Um, chat is engaging for humans. Um, so you put a chat out in the out in the open and people play with it. Um, and boy, that reminds me of an essay that I'd like to uh, reference. There's this guy in the Atlantic that talked about playing with it. Mm. And that's a great article. It's uh, Ian somebody, I'll get the name, but um, I'd, I'd recommend that. Yeah, send it to me and we'll link it in the short, we'll link it in the show notes. Okay, good. So, so I, I'd recommend that article. And I think the fact that it was chat and that you could play with it, meaning they put it out in the open. Those two things, I think that's what's behind this million user in a week phenomenon. Yeah, let's let's talk about how important that is actually. So getting to a million users, users in one week is almost unheard of in any technology. So that's incredible scale. Why were so many people interested, right? So what is it that people are seeing when they chat and ask a question that is so thrilling to humans, right? Like you all have kind of, helped us understand that maybe it's not as breakthrough as it seems, that this is a lot of incremental progress and you already had a lot of this technology in place. But for myself and Jess and others of the million people that are playing with ChatGPT, it seems pretty remarkable to ask any question and get an answer that seems coherent. And then importantly, ask a follow-up question and the system seems to comprehend what we already talked about and respond in line again, like that blows our minds. We haven't seen a computer do that before. Over to you on RLHF, Aditya. Yeah. I'll just take one second. Uh, I wanted to underline something that you said, uh, Levi, where you said um, when you ask a question and you get a coherent answer, I think the key over there is the coherent answer. Remember that you didn't say an accurate answer. Mm. Uh, so that's, that's <laughs> Let's talk more about that. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's a key thing because 
because that's fundamentally what the whole notion of RLHF was as well, right? Uh, wait, Aditya, may I just add something to what you said? You yes, said please. coherence versus correctness. I will say, though, that I have been impressed by its ability to handle context. The fact that it yes. seems to maintain context across not one, not two, not four, but, you know, 20 turns of dialogue, uh, that has been impressive to me. That, well, that, I would attribute that, I, I'm good, I'm just to interject, I would attribute that to the size, that's a big part, and the, and the span of, of material that it can attend to and represent. Is it, yep. is it fair to say that that is a, a human-like trait that previously most people didn't see in computing? I mean, maybe in some applications we have kind of context and history, but when I talk to my wife or my friend or my colleague, we have all of this like shared history that every conversation is built on. And we're kind of like going back to things and drawing things in. And it is just this evolving relationship. So I've never had that with computing. Like even the fact that I can ask multiple questions, like that didn't really ever feel possible before. So th is that different? That I would say, is, and, 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 and again, I'll, I'll underscore your sentence, your, your phrase saying human-like maintaining mm. of context that goes to our RLHF or reinforcement learning via human feedback. Which is, which is, which I, I mean, to answer your question, yes, I think this is the first time, at least I personally have seen a, a, a conversation where it can hold for a really long context, um, as multiple turns, right? It still maintains the context very well. Um, it, it does when there is a need to disambiguate though. I mean, you know, we all have been trying to break it, have, have adversarial conversations, trying to see, you know, confuse it with multiple contexts. Um, there is a subtle difference where humans tend to disambiguate in such cases where, mm. oh, what, when you're trying to reference a he, where it could be multiple things, you say, oh, did you mean this or that? We haven't completely seen that in every example that we've interacted with uh, chatbot with, right? It prefers one over the other. But besides that, it's extremely human-like in the way it maintains its context. You are absolutely right. And that, I think, is partly attributed to the way it's trained on the whole notion of uh, human feedback. Um, it's, this, can, can someone explain that? So first define the RFLH, the acronym. Okay, what is it exactly? <laughs> so 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 fundamentally, this whole uh, framework, right? What what at least the RLHF framework used by Open uh, AI. What was done is uh, they've they've brought in human feedback into the loop in the following way. When they train and they're trying to fine tune the model. They don't. They need a scoring function, right? Which is which is identifying and their uh, problem, which among the two things is better. But so, may I say something very quickly there? Yes, yeah, Deepa, sorry to interrupt. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Deepa, I think the one critical aspect here is there are certain tasks in which goodness, how well did you do that task, is obvious. For example, mm -hmm. if you're building a machine that plays chess, you can measure well how often does this machine win, right? And so the goodness of the machine. Or the algorithm is clear. It's objective. It's mm. objective. There are, yeah. However, there are several. Sorry, Paul. Did you want to? Say I something? do. You, you, so, so right there, I wanted to introduce the concept of RL uh, for the audience, mm. which is we can take exactly your analogy of chess, and we can talk about Alpha Zero or whatever it was, where we had a system that learned to represent the chessboard, just like a language model learns to represent the meaning of a sentence. So it learned how to represent the chessboard. And then we let it play itself. And the result of playing itself allowed it to reinforce what worked. It, mm. it learned 
what worked in playing chess by reinforcing the decision function of how it chose a move given a position. That's that's the reward function, right? This is the reward function. That yeah, so let me just complete that thought now. Yeah. Sorry, I'll turn that back to you. Go ahead. Um, that was a really, really nice way that Paul put it, right? So the idea was if, if you know what a good outcome is and you have a sequence of decisions to make, reinforcement learning is, you can think of reinforcement learning as a technique where you make, you know, you try out sequences of decisions you see which sequences lead to good outcomes, which sequences lead to bad outcomes, and you reinforce the decisions that lead to good outcomes. You reinforce, you know, yeah. so you more it's like, like, like parenting. Absolutely. <laughs> now, or teaching. You know, or teaching, yeah. <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> the, the thing is, though, that there are a bunch of really useful and interesting tasks where outcomes are harder to measure. So, for example, think of a chat. So you and I have a chat. At the end of it, you have some notion of whether that chat was satisfying and good. But if I ask you to come up with, you know, a mathematical function that you could use to apply to a chat and tell me, yeah, this chat was five good and this chat was negative three good, that's harder to do, mm. right? And so this whole RLHF function, and I'm going to turn this back to Aditya, sorry, this whole RLHF approach, is attacks tasks in which the, the scoring, how good is a chat, how good is a summary, you know, how good is a response to something that's harder to measure. Mm. And OpenAI came up with this really inventive way, I think, of, uh, of tackling those kinds of problems in which the metric, the measure is hard to compute. Aditya, please. Right. No, uh, that's, thanks a lot, Ashish. I mean, because uh, this we are going to refer to as the reward function. I mean, going back to uh, Leva, you were saying uh, parenting and Jesse was saying teaching, right? There's this notion of reward and punishment in general, right? So this is the reward function. And in general, in, in reinforcement learning, it's more mathematically understood, right? In most of the typical examples. What was changed in RLHF stands for reinforcement learning via human feedback is to make this reward function uh, a human um, understanding based, basically their feedback. So what they've done is try to uh, model the reward function as human preference. As in, you give two outputs and you say, hey, human annotators, what would you prefer among these two? Hmm. Right? It's it's a comparison. It's not, you can't give it a number, right? So they started making it a comparative study. This output versus this output, what would you prefer? And a lot of data was collected. Thanks to GPT-3 and other things where we all have thrown up so much data, they had all that data. So they took those outputs and they gave it to other, uh, you know, humans and actually said, would, which one would, sounds better or which one looks better? And their outcomes or their responses were modeled as a reward function. Hmm. They, they actually they, did it in two phases, though. They actually did do data gathering where they scored the absolute. Um, but this is an important step um, in language generation today. And it's not it's not open AIs alone. Language generation from any of these approaches to date has largely been uh, a beam search using something called Viterbi to basically spit out text in a probabilistic manner with no feedback, no scoring function. So it didn't get the benefit of any feedback whatsoever, let alone uh, the benefit of reinforcement learning. That So this, this use of human feedback with reinforcement learning, RLHF, is recent but it's not unique to chat 
GPT. In fact, uh, they did a nice job with it in the predecessor to chat GTP mm. called uh, GPT called uh, instruct GPT, which is more interesting in my opinion. So uh, back to you, Aditya. Yeah. So uh, as I was mentioning, right. So they've open AI have done these uh, series of uh, um, models uh, called the refer to as the GPT 3.5 family of models where all of them actually, including instruct GPT uh, and uh, chat GPT are uh, um, they follow the RLHF framework, right? Where they, they were able to model human feedback into the reward function and optimize for that. Mm. So now going back to why we, we are seeing the, the responses being coherent, right? Is because humans have actually preferred that as the preferred choice when looking at two different outputs. Having said that, if the choice was also to make sure that they're accurate, maybe things have been would have been different, right? Obviously, because it learns to also be accurate in a way. Okay, so let's uh, two comments on two quick. Yeah. Comments. So if you go and you look at OpenAI's website, they make two statements related to that. Um, one of them is that in the actual uh, human feedback um, and in the development of the training cases, the, the people they used were biased towards longer utterances. So that's why yeah. ChatGPT is verbose. Um, the second point, which is a very interesting technical point that they made, it's 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 more than technical, but that what they said, what GPT-3 knows is different than what the people know. Mm. And both of those, um, and not, not to mention the limits on what chat GPT-3 knows, uh, lead to many of the errors that you see in the output. Actually, also, oh yeah, you go ahead, Didier. One last thing, right? But but the benefit of human feedback also addresses the toxicity of uh, uh, large language models sometimes generating, uh, you know, uh, really bad content. Um, yeah, let's talk about that, actually. So let's talk about as exciting as this is. I think you see a lot of questions out there about, like, is it ethical? Is it good? Are we going into a dangerous territory? So I don't know. Jess, I know you've been looking a lot about this. Like, what have you seen out there that people are worried about? And then we'll go specifically into education and talk about, like, why are people like either worried or excited about what this could mean for education? Yeah, well, I think in a general aspect, um, I actually was thinking back to that step function that you were talking about before, is that like this for the layman does feel like, like a big jump. Um, and like I was a math teacher before in the classroom. And so us, like we just see two different points and we don't see that gradual curve getting there. Um, so I think that, um, on an ethics standpoint, like I've definitely seen examples um, here of, you know, the chat bot releasing racist, sexist examples when you like code it in a certain way or like provide a certain context that gets around some of their blockers. So I think that there's certainly a worry from just general people about what kind of content can be produced in there. Yeah. Um, I have a couple of thoughts yeah. if you guys don't mind. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Um, first, um, um, I, I don't think we have to worry about that too much with some caveats. It, it, um, so I think, uh, um, Ashish, you, you might be able to touch on this better than, better than I, but I think we're going to have adversarial AIs that um, basically filter um, toxicity out um, and uh, bias out. I, I don't think that that's mature yet, but I think that's coming. Um, I, I do think that we have a deep problem 
with regard to trust of these systems, because we don't um, entrust in the decisions or the opinions expressed by these uh, systems. Um, it's up to some somebody behind the curtain to cloak it in adversarial filters or whatever. And it's their policies that are going to constrain, if not dictate, the behavior of the resulting agent. So uh, you can only trust the agent to the extent that you trust um, and allow time for all of this to mature. But then even then, to the extent that you trust its creators. Uh, Paul, that's a fantastic point. So already, even with just search engines, there's always controversies about are they prioritizing certain links and making other links harder to find with something like an AI system that produces text, all of those factors are exacerbated because now you don't even see pages and links, right? You just see summarized information that this thing is producing for you. I, I think that's a fantastic point. So let's look at, we have um, 15 minutes maybe left in our conversation. Let's steer towards education. We at Merlin Mind have chosen to be as our CEO Satya Nitta likes to say, translators of the science. We're trying to take what's cutting edge in artificial intelligence and apply it in solutions and products that can help teachers and students to learn, to engage, to better use technology in the classroom. What are some of the exciting kind of paths that these types of developments open in education? And what are some of the concerning ones? You guys have been thinking about this for sure. Like, what, what is good? What is bad? I've heard things like, there's no more essays. SAT, see you later. Like, people don't need to write essays anymore. Is that true? Like, what, what's coming now? I would love to hear Jess's viewpoint on that, actually, before we get into <laughs> any technical stuff. But I'd actually love to hear from Jess on that. Yeah, I think that there's definitely, that is a first reaction that has come from the teacher communities. Like, what does that, this mean for academic honesty? and and like, does this mean that it's plagiarism to type your essay prompt into chat GPT and get a coherent essay? Um, but if you think about it, there have been resources for students to lean on in a way that have existed before this, too. And I think that anytime like a new technology or resources become available, like it forces teachers and education to think about, okay, what am I really trying to assess from a student? And like, how do I get around this process that a computer or an essay database could just fulfill? Um, so I think like one way that I've even seen is, you know, what you guys were talking about, like the, the responses may be coherent, but not accurate. So maybe a different way of assessment looks like plugging in these essay prompts and then having students evaluate how great the essay is that has just been spit out and really thinking about like, is this accurate? What's a better word that this AI could have used? Um, is this, has the correct voice that we want? Um, and really using concepts that we wanna teach and, and using it in a evaluative way. So I think it's gonna push us to try to find new forms of assessment if the AI becomes powerful enough that it truly is replacing um, the essay writing itself. I also think that you know, there's a way for us to kind of get at asking students to explain their process um, too. So, you know, you could have students present on the topic they wrote about um, instead of just, you know, relying solely on the writing portion of it. If you think that maybe the students didn't produce this piece of writing 
um, in that creative process. They're still having to express that creative process through a presentation or some other form of assessment. Um, so I think that those, that's a particular on the essay um, is, is some thoughts that I've seen. I I have uh, I I have to say I love what you said about rethinking assessment, uh, and and using this uh, um, available technology to rethink of that. I'll just share one thing, and maybe that's connected to what you just said. Uh, if I may just share this uh, example that I was playing around with um, on ChatGPT. Um, can you guys see my screen? Not just yet. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Why is seven plus five equal to ten? It justified its answer, right? Which so this is an assessment thing. So if you actually ask a question, which is a general question, explain this more for people who aren't seeing it. So Aditya asked the question to ChatGPT: oh. Why is seven plus five equal to ten? And which then, is obviously wrong. And you can see the answer from ChatGPT three saying the the basic principle behind arithmetic is that it allows us to collect and combine numbers in a variety of ways. The symbol plus is used to denote addition, which is the process of combining numbers together to produce a new total. In the case of seven plus five, the two numbers are combined to produce a new total of 10. <laughs> and that's where things break, right? <laughs> so why, yeah, why did it break here? That's, that's, that's the thing. It's, it's, it, this, is, this is one example of the different things that I've seen while I, I played with GPT-3, uh, sorry, chat GPT, uh, right? Uh, if you give why questions with a totally wrong statement, it still justifies your thing, right? But if I ask a general, uh, we could try it, right? What is seven plus five? I'm sure it'll give the right answer. And and if you said to it, but wait, seven plus five is twelve, it would come back with something interesting. We could try. I mean, but yeah. but well, okay. Um, I'd like to get back, if I could, to that question about uh, applying this in education. Number one. I thought, Jess, your comments were fantastic. Um, I, I don't fully see how to pull that off because if we use generated text to assess, there's more work to be, to, 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 for the student to assess, there's still the work of actually evaluating how they assess that text. And this tool wouldn't, or maybe it could help with that. Um, so, um, this is a case, this seven plus five equals 10, but more generally the case that the system really doesn't know much and isn't thinking about much. Um, and, um, you know, I, and, and then there are many examples with GPT, I'm sorry, chat GPT, where we see uh, fallacious or misleading responses. Um, I'm very interested in a system uh, that demonstrates the, the value of curated knowledge. So if we don't feed the, a system like ChatGPT with internet randomness, but we feed it high quality text like they did in Galactica, uh, I think we'll get a lot better results out of it. But still, we need more beyond what these things are doing to critique an answer, literally to look at the generated text and have some competence at saying how, that it's accurate. Um, we don't have that, we need that. Um, yeah, I think that could be an incredible skill for teachers to implement and already is implemented. Um, I mean, students are interacting with media and stories that have a lot of falsehoods in them already. 
And that's already a skill that we are trying to teach our students of, you know, how to sort through what's false and what's true, even when it's really convincing and looks like anything could be true nowadays. So I think that that's like a really powerful concept and skill that we've been teaching for a while and that this AI tool could just be a new way to integrate that. Cool. And, and, and again, that is the reason your thought on rethinking assessment was just really spot on for me, right? I mean, that's, it's a tool. I mean, as, as in one of our previous conversations, um, Ashish, I think you mentioned the genie is out the bottle. It's not like you can push it back in. It's, it's out there. The kids are going to use it. It's now it's, we have to figure out how, how best to actually, um, rethink our, uh, it, maybe it's going to help us rethink the notion of assessments and education and learning. I mean, um, when you say why is seven plus five equal to 10, right? What not? Uh, the expectation is not for you to come, come come up with a coherent answer. That's not what you're supposed to be learning. You're supposed to be learning how addition works. Mm. And that's what we're supposed to test, not your justification of the answer, which is wrong. Right? So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Could, I, could, I, could I take one more step here by referencing retro? Um, so the, if we took Galactica with a large body of academically vetted content, and we augmented it with a, a memory where not only does the system uh, generate text, but it guides that generation of text heavily by retrieving information from this curated knowledge base. That's essentially what Retro did. Um, I think we could do a fantastic job of delivering accurate content to students if we stepped in that direction. Yep. Yeah, so to reiterate that point, absolutely, right? So this notion of grounding the AI in high quality content, as opposed to what Paul called internet randomness, I think that is a crucial, crucial um, potential step forward. That would make it incredibly useful um, to education use cases, to all kinds of other use cases. As, as we think about, uh, so, Paul, you want to finish that thought first? Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Well, there's one really, so, so um, there's two more things that I think, if we have time, are very relevant to education. Uh, uh, one yeah. of, okay, one of them is um, we don't have to generate paragraphs of text. If we can generate small, useful sentences, like what's the name of the planet just further from the sun than Mars? Um, if we if we can do that, now all of a sudden we can generate all sorts of tools and uh, utility in education. So we don't have to just chat. We can generate small pieces of text, um, and some of those small pieces of text might be pithy answers, um, and we might generate questions that um, like multiple choice questions. We might be able to generate multiple choice. We might be able to take the teacher's guidance. Hey, generate me a multiple choice question about why planets don't fall out of orbit um, or something like that. And, and maybe the teacher finds that useful in teaching whatever lesson. So I just wanted to make the point that we don't have to aim to generate paragraphs, mm. aim for generating smaller, even structured things. Um, so the second thing is, yep. Oh, yeah, go. Second thing. The second thing is, I want to get back. The, what's uninteresting about ChatGPT is it has no purpose. Mm. Um, in education, we want to educate. 
That's our purpose. <laughs> um, so how do we bring that purpose into this chat? Um, and uh, I'll, I'll touch on a system and then a goal. Uh, this, recently, there's another system called Cicero, which uses this RLHF framework um, to play the game of diplomacy, which, which requires communication and uh, essentially negotiation and coercion if you're convincing people. It's like playing risk. So you're, you, so, and this system does very well. It actually learns by having strategy. It has the goal of winning the game. Um, and it learns how to communicate so as to achieve its goal, even though that communication takes many steps of dialogue. If we can get the goals to be our learning objectives, perhaps we can have an AI that teaches with a purpose using these kinds of capabilities and takes multiple steps in its chat trying to lead you to achieve learning objectives, mix in some of what we just said about assess generated assessments or pre-existing assessments along the way, and perhaps in a goal that I hope to see someday, engage in really good Socratic dialogue. Mm. Let's actually, we have just a few minutes left, and I'd love everybody to kind of close out with a similar comment to Paul's kind of what he hopes and wishes to see one day, that, that it sounds like there's an opportunity to use advancements like this to drive more engaging Socratic discussions in class, more engaging Socratic discussions one-on-one, -on -one, potentially with an AI. As we think now about the role of an institution to shepherd this incorrectly, right? I think we heard that before, Paul. I think it was you saying, it's really about the goals behind the institution bringing this. Like, what are you trying to achieve with this? Merlin Mind was founded with the explicit intent to say there's cutting edge technology that could have more impact for ed in education for the good if we use it correctly and build solutions and applications that are truly focused on the right goals, the right outcomes, the right and building the right systems to get there. We've so far focused on helping teachers more effectively navigate and use the technology they have in their classrooms through voice to make it easier to interact and through multimodal control. So I can use a remote control, I can touch an interface, I can use a voice command and automations. I can take something that took multiple steps and compress it into one and save myself time as a teacher so I can engage with my student. As you think about the role that Merlin Mind will play going forward and continue to bring in technologies that are on the cutting edge, like these types of large, large language models and what is happening with ChatGPT, what does it mean for a company like Merlin Mind to continue to have more of an impact on teaching and learning? Is there opportunity for us to bring these things into what we're doing to better help teachers and students? Um, I mean, you you uh, you you touched on this point, right? You just said uh, um, so far, Mullen Mind has done uh, supporting teachers on a technical uh, control. I mean, just navigating through the classroom. I think um, things like ChatGPT or in general these these developments in AI, right, or, or allow us to support teachers in doing what they really eventually care about, right? Which is learning instruction. Uh, and not through navigating of technology and things like that. There are automations even over there, right? There are things that can be happening even over there. And that's kind of where we are heading towards, right? Uh, this These kind of advancements are also allowing, giving us an opportunity to rethink what is the crux of education, right? What is the What does learning even mean? I mean, um, what is instruction? What is learning? Uh, 
there are so many other things happening in our classroom today which i think are creating a noisy environment to eventually not let the teachers do what they love doing which is mm. teach and instruct and learn and what not right uh while ai can help declutter that and really focus on this already it can also um support them do this in a much better manner right uh, um uh, in it, i'll i'll rephrase that rather than better i would say more efficient and more uh, mm. supportive man right yeah uh, which which i'm sure is what teachers would want so uh this is just one example this is as as as, as uh, we were discussing about chat gpt yeah. we have seen a few things uh but there are there are few ways to go even before we can actually have something usable um for teachers because of some of the shortcomings we discussed yeah uh, but it's an exciting time it's super exciting time i'm actually looking forward to how what all we can do with this uh, kind of developments great ashish yeah i think what i would say is i'll agree with both paul and aditya right so we focused this conversation on what is the implication of chat gpt for students oh if a student uses chat gpt are they going to comprehend are they going to produce inaccurate stuff are they going to find misinformation um i think there is the the uh, the, the other side of it which is what are the implications of chat gpt for teachers how can we make the tool usable for teachers so that teachers can do their you know what they like doing more effectively more efficiently um i think that is a really crucial side as well and teachers also less adversarial than students so trying mm. to break i have a quick comment and then i'd love to hear what jess has to say yeah okay um so um with regard to teacher productivity in particular so i i i think the actual teaching helping people learn i'm much more interested in that but you know our mission is also to help the teacher in the classroom and uh helping her be more productive and having less distraction doing rote work or working with technology so that she can focus on students and learning is core to that mission so if you take a look at something like web gpt or instruct gpt and you think about being able to tell to demonstrate or or, or what's coming out of a deck um if you take if you pursue the notion of being able to demonstrate or tell a machine how to do some of your rote work perhaps we can enable that teacher to be more productive to not be so uh embroiled in dealing with technology and systems and more focused on learning wonderful jess final thoughts um I have so many thoughts but I'll try to keep them condensed. I think for terms of teacher productivity I've already seen examples of people plugging into this like create a rubric for this question and ChatGPT will spit out a rubric for you. Um and you know, I don't see far off like saying create a lesson plan around this topic. Um there are like already structures and that's not new like There's so many resources for teachers to access pre-made units, pre-made lessons, um things like that. So this fear of like this technology will take over my job as a teacher. There are already resources out there. I think what teachers add is being able to take those base blocks and then being like, okay, here's a a boilerplate lesson, but how do I make this engaging for my students? Like their interests and um their needs and how do i differentiate it for my different learners and maybe this could be like the building block that teachers then build off of what you guys were mentioning um the other thing that it it reminds me of is just i think it gets down to what we what kinds of things do we want 
humans to continue to do? And what do we prefer to have technology figure out instead? And I think about in my own math classroom as a teacher, letting kids use calculators. Like I think like there was, I'm sure like when calculators are first entering the classroom, it's like, oh, what's lost? Like now the student doesn't have, like we're not gonna teach students how to do these crazy multiplication and division problems anymore. They can just plug it into a calculator. Are we gonna let them get away with that? And the answer is yes. Like why would we waste our students' time asking them to do this crazy calculation by hand when the technology exists for them to do that? And instead, student teacher time can be focused on understanding the concept. And you know, what do I actually plug into the calculator? And thinking about what am I actually looking for in the purpose? Um, so I think that's, those are my thoughts are, are really figuring out what do we want technology? What do we want to offload on technology? And what do we determine is actually really important conceptually for students and teachers to engage in? I am going to enjoy reading the transcript for those wonderful deep thoughts. That that was fantastic. Um, I, it, it, in the course of it, just one small aspect of everything you had to say there, um, which was fantastic. Um, I was reminded, Ashish and Aditya, of our conversation where we wanted to get a, a chat bot to know enough about teaching that it could answer the question, how would you teach a fifth grader about gravity? Mm -hmm. To be continued on our next episode. <laughs> I so appreciate Aditya, Ashish, Paul, Jess, thank you for coming and spending time talking about this today. We will continue having these conversations. We're thrilled that the experts in AI have chosen to dedicate their careers to education. I'm so happy to be part of this company because I believe what we're doing matters. Let's keep doing it. Let's keep building solutions that help teachers and students. And let's translate, like Satya says, and bring this stuff to education. To be continued on the next conversation. Thanks, all. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Unsupervised Learning. Until next time, keep learning.